Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I'm Colin, the main host, and uh, tonight we are continuing our discussion on everyone's favorite firebending princess, Azula. And tonight I am joined uh, first by Casey. Hello. Hello. (laughs) And joining in for this discussion, uh, we have Kristen. Hello. Hey, guys. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, uh, first, before we kind of even get started with this, um, I would definitely encourage uh, our listeners to check out our first two parts um, of this discussion. Uh, We kind of make our way uh, through uh, Azula's journey in book two. And uh, in this episode, we are going to be talking about her journey, incredible journey, over the course of book three, Fire. Um, and, uh, last time we kind of ended talking about the crossroads of destiny, um, and just her role in bossing say, and just the amazing cliffhanger that that left on. And before we kind of jump into book three, I do want to talk about this idea of, you know, how Azula left the state of the show at the end of book two and the significance, especially for all of us, because the hiatus that we all had to live through and everything that kind of came by. So when, when book two finished, we had no news whatsoever that book three was going to be coming out. We had, there was no Twitter. There was like none of this to kind of give us any insight into, well, don't worry guys, we're working on the season. It was just like, well, we ended on a very dour note. The Earth Kingdom has fallen. Aang was shot full of lightning. And uh, what are we, how are we going to resolve all of this? Um, so I don't know. First, I, I want to just kind of talk to you guys about what you remember in terms of how Azula left things and your like thoughts on her and what you thought she was going to be doing into this next season during that great hiatus that we all had to live through. <laughs> That's a, that's like a, that's a hard point to like even, I'm trying to go back and remember, I do remember um, when that last battle happened, uh, Zuko's choice in that, and Aru's face, um, and this disappointment, where, because you think he's turning, he's turning over a new leaf, and then he kind of doesn't, and it's like, and then then Aang gets shot down and you don't know if he's alive. And it's, it's just sort of like, I just remember being like this, this sort of, oh, oh, oh crap moment. And then that's where you're left. It, it, it had no, it was the ultimate cliffhanger. And like you said, we didn't have anything, you know, to let us know what was going on or what was going to happen. It was just sort of like, how are they going to come back from this? And does this mean Azula wins? Like what's going on? It's just sort of like this confusion. That's what I remember. It's just sort of like, it was so good, but I was just like left just so, so like, like what's happening next? Like wanting to shake the screen, like <laughs> kind of like that feeling, very frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Kristen? I remember that agony. I mean, I remember on Avatar Portal too, like all the ranting, all the conspiracy theories. Like <laughs> people went n- nuts. I mean, even the little what was it? Nickelodeon put out like the series of like games and like video clips and stuff uh, leading up to the final season. But still for the most part, we had no idea what was going on. There were no spoilers for the most part, really in those games, except for the fact that, you know, Aang's avatar spirit was obviously compromised because he was shot down by Azula while in the avatar state. Um, so, I mean, I remember the anxiety, not just for me, but from the community, the entire community <laughs> was in agony. Um, and it, it, it was it was really hard to tell what was going on because, you know, we had all held out for Zuko. He had done all of this character development. But to be fair to him, it was very brief. And at the end of the day, you know, he still had motives that were unresolved in the series. And so it made sense that he struggled and lost for the time being to that lesser judgment. But, I mean, it really highlighted how well... Azula not only knew him, but was able to manipulate him. I mean, there was so much background we were missing to give context to how Azula was able to do that because we weren't really given a lot of 
background to their relationship. I think the only thing we, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this right before season three, the only real flashback I remember uh, that kind of like showed a little bit of Azula and Zuko's relationship was it flashed back to Zuko's Agni Kai. And we saw Azula as one of the people who smiled when he was struck versus Iroh who looked away. Um, So that was probably the only snippet we really got of uh, how far back, uh, you know, Psycho Azula went. But for the most part, we were all just in the dark waiting to see what was going to happen and how this was going to resolve. Yeah, definitely. Um, And, you know, it's just her setting the pieces and how decisive her victory was in terms of taking over the Earth Kingdom from the inside. And this idea that she utilized the Daedalee um, to kind of, you know, make the coup possible and, you know, was able to manipulate Long Fang and just everything that happened in that kind of final bit of book two. It just led you to believe that she truly is this mastermind of a villain. And if we compare that to the end of book one, where Aang and the gang come out victorious and Zhao is defeated, what a great move for them to make at the end of the second book. I mean, it's kind of, it it does feel like a Empire Strikes Back type of structure with it. Because what makes, you know, that movie so great is, you know, they try and try, but in the end, Vader still comes away the victor. And now so much of the anticipation of the next story is how are the heroes going to pick up the pieces and still fight back when everything is stacked against them? So now I want to get to, you know, we get into book three and we see Azula back at the palace and it's this really interesting thing that we don't really see the conversation between Azula and Ozai of her telling him that Zuko killed the Avatar, but we learn from it, from that incredible scene between Ozai and Zuko, that he says, Princess Azula told me, you know, your greatest achievement, that you kill, that you slayed the Avatar. And it, I mean, that scene alone is amazing because it's great Mark Hamill really pulling in the Star Wars Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I didn't even realize that. <laughs> um, I was going to say, that was like perfect. <laughs> I was like, you mentioned Empire Strikes Back and Mark Hamill voices Ozai. But I thought that's why the comparison was made. <laughs> <laughs> Subconsciously. <laughs> um, so the reason I wanted to bring up this scene in particular was because when we see Ozai for the first time, I always found that to be such a powerful moment because he is like this very composed, handsome individual. And up to this point, we have only seen Ozai through like these visions of Aang seeing this like silhouette roaring with fire or the silhouette of him in the Agni Kai with Zuko. And it was always this feeling that like Ozai is this like horrific monster. And then suddenly we see him and it's like, he has these similarities to Azula and to Zuko. And just suddenly it humanizes him. But we also know and realize still very quickly that he is a monster still on the inside. Um, but again, there's this great scene in the fire palace in the, the fire nation palace where Zuko is like freaking out and he is worried about you know, him, he's second guessing getting his honor back and he goes and storms into Azula's room and we see Azula in like, in the most casual, like, <laughs> like I love that art, like art, like art style they did for her in that scene where she is like just like getting out of bed, and like her hair is all down. She doesn't have any of her makeup on, and but that still doesn't stop her from 
completely remaining very cool and chilly and just being like, oh, why are you so worried, Zuko? It's like, you have nothing to fear unless the Avatar is still alive. And that's when we really realize the kind of long-term ploy that Azula implemented in that. So I don't know, what were some of your thoughts in terms of like that scene in particular and seeing Azula kind of have that um, that moment with Zuko? So I'll go first, I'll go first. <laughs> I was just creeped out actually. I'm just remembering that scene actually. Um, yeah, that like, kind of like piggybacking off what you were saying. She's just still so together. You know what I mean? Even when she's just like technically in, in a relaxed state, she's very, it's like she's all, she never has her guard down. She's always aware of what the bigger picture is for her anyway, you know? And it's like, she's just, so she's thinking I never like a hair out of place for her. It's just sort of like, she's totally um, got this. It's this, it's almost like she's got the plan so well laid out that she doesn't even need to obsess over it. She just kind of is like comfortable. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. just look into that that sort of like regardless of which way this goes, she makes it out on top no matter what, even if he doesn't. Mm. And it's so she's she's just knows that she's safe and she she doesn't mind. She would it's like in a way she wouldn't mind if it were true, but if it weren't, it's like it just makes her look better and she likes watching him squirm. And that I think that makes her feel more relaxed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when he's squirming. So yeah. Well. I- I know in the last episode, too, we talked about, you know, the, uh, you know, the kind of sibling dynamic um, that we, you know, get to see between uh, Azula and Zuko and like what happens when, you know, just the, the many different ways that she is just kind of like messing with him. And I love that point that you brought up that like she doesn't need to worry because the pieces are set. Like everything is going so well for her. And she doesn't have very much at all to worry about. And you can tell in that scene, especially. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to get up from bed. No big deal. What are you so worried about? And she's just more sinister than that. But yeah, she doesn't care. But you think Zuko would have already learned because did he not chant in the second season that Azula always lies? I mean, why is he perpetually surprised when Azula lies to people? He has to know it's just her game. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's like one of those things that even though he was chanting that, it's if there's anything that is louder in his mind, if there's any like mantra that is louder for Zuko is I must restore my honor. <laughs> and like, and that's, that's what took the priority in that time and why he betrayed Iroh and why he, you know, decided to side with Azula in that moment. But it's interesting because, you know, we get to see this kind of brief moment of like casual Azula and everything. And so much of the early beginnings of book three are focused primarily on Zuko and the like the struggle that he has to deal with in terms of worrying if the Avatar is still alive and just trying to come to terms with like he did get everything that he wanted, but it's not at all what he expected. And how it's this move by Azula that in a way Zuko is suffering more even when he's getting everything that he wanted and how satisfying that is for her. And we really see that come to a head in one of, I think, just the most potent character episodes of the entire series and especially considering and taking into consideration Azula, and that's the beach. And that's the one everyone always goes back to when they are looking at Azula as a character because we get a different side of her, and we get such a really amazing glimpse into her personality and the dynamic, focusing solely on that dynamic with Ty, with uh, Tylee, May, and Zuko. Um, so before we kind of dive into this, I will uh, let everyone know we uh, last year we recorded an episode specifically on the beach, and I would highly recommend checking that out uh, because we definitely dive into the episode in specific. And if we do rehash some of those points for our listeners who have listened, 
We apologize, but we are doing this deep dive on Azula, and this is the most significant Azula episode. Uh, episode, I would say, mm, arguably, but it, it, you know, we we need to kind of dive into this. Um, so again, let's get into this beach volleyball scene, and uh, or even before that, I I think the first scene is when they are going to Ember, the going to Ember Island. The, again, sense of relaxed Azula that we get and how she is like seeming chill, but like almost kind of just like, oh, our parents are sending us away to go to Ember Island. Like our family is sending us away. Like this is so lame. (laughs) I forgot about that. She's like kind of complaining that they have to like go relax, which says a lot about her. Because she's just like, oh, we have to do this? Like, really? Now she's like, just totally perturbed by it. <laughs> well, yeah, her her and Zuko were definitely like your stereotypic teens in that moment, being like grouchy, <laughs> like yeah. not getting their way. Zuko's like, does father not trust me? And being, you know, emo Zuko. And Azula's just <laughs> like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think it's, it's great because we see this over the course of this episode. And it's this idea that now in terms of the time that has passed, Azula went from being on this relentless pursuit of Zuko and the Avatar, and then now conquer and then conquering Bossing Say in the Earth Kingdom. She completed all of that. And now it's like she got a taste for conquest and for achieving those tangible goals. And now she's kind of being forced to relax. And it's like getting this like feeling that she is like kind of chomping at the bit of like, where is my next like target? What is my goal? What do I need to conquer and achieve? And we see that so directly when we see the beach volleyball scene. (laughs) It's like such a great, such a great moment. (laughs) She's like, that's where this episode also becomes just like a night, a bit of comic relief for, uh, what's setting up to be a dark season hmm. uh, in some ways. And it was like, but also at the same time being so insightful into her her personality and what we know, but what we don't know and how it kind of lines up. Because like you're saying, like she sees everything sort of like a con- like a like a battle or like a str- she needs to be strategic about things at all times. And that, <laughs> she makes the comment about the one girl. It's like her foot, like she's... <laughs> She's making a comment about how her foot and one foot is like weaker than the other, and that's like their weak spot. So if we do this, then we'll be able to to, to conquer this. And it's like it's just a volleyball game. It's supposed to be fun. It's like she doesn't really understand fun as a teenager, as opposed to what's fun for Azula is like basically threatening people's lives and taking <laughs> taking taking over power and everything. So it's just <laughs> like that sort of stretch and dynamic just made it also so funny, but also pretty. Like geez, Azula. It's a, chill out yeah <laughs> yeah and we we mentioned uh in our previous episodes uh there is a great video though i think it actually got taken down um because paramount and viacom are the worst um hello future me did this whole incredible episode about azula and the psychology of azula and one of the points that he brought brought up that i really want to echo in like this moment in particular is I and I just found it so great was that Azula believes and has such a strong desire to win at everything that she does. And the idea of not winning even a beach volleyball game is like it's it's inconceivable. <laughs> And that's why, you know, she suddenly goes into this kind of strategy mode where she is, like you were saying, Casey, like, you know, look at that girl there. She's favoring her left leg. My, I think it would probably be a childhood injury. And it's just like so much of what we have seen Azula and the way that she has worked so successfully as an antagonist in the series is that she knows how to pinpoint people's weaknesses and zero in on them because... 
she is all about efficiency and doing things in a clean, precise way. And if she knows that she can kind of take advantage of someone's shortcoming or their weakness or anything like that, she's going to zero in on it because that means she's that much closer to victory. And they'll also, you know, feel the psychological pain of like being pinpointed in that way. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, like, not only is she really efficient at plotting, she's really efficient in her gloating, too, because let's not forget her reaction (laughs) to winning by setting the net on fire and then basically suggesting that these people have like they will feel this dishonor. (laughs) <laughs> the rest of their life. like to an extreme that was so unnecessary because it was just a game of volleyball but in her mind you know she sees the world so black and white that any any loss on a big scale is 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 the worst like she accepted a lot of defeat throughout the series but ultimately she won her true goal so the little bits here and there didn't matter so you know if the other team scored scored a point or two it's no big deal as long as they won the game overall and she did and i think that was what was important for her is you know it doesn't matter if the other team scores a point or two as long as we win the game that is what she focuses on and it's it's kind of horrifying as she's sitting there with her burning net Yes. Uh, I, I also do want to note, too, before the beach volleyball scene, there was also a great moment where uh, as they're walking to the beach, there's like a kid building a sandcastle and she just like kicks it over to make room for the blanket. <laughs> just if you so didn't believe ruthless. she was a psychopath then, you knew it in that moment that she yeah. was a true sociopath. <laughs> She's destroying kids' sandcastles. It's like not even like, what are you doing? This, this is where we are gonna be. It's like no. <laughs> well, I think a lot of that too is like I think a part of that is also like royalty uh, Azula as well because it's kind of like this is like this is our beach. We like we own the Fire Nation. Like I can go wherever I please, and if I need to kick over this sandcastle because it's in the right spot, then I will do it. Or because I feel like it, because I can. <laughs> I think say she did just topple a kingdom, so I think it's a little, you know, reflective of what she's already done in her life. Like what's mm. toppling another castle to Azula? <laughs> uh, so of course, uh, you know, as they uh, compete in this beach, beach uh, volleyball game, they uh, um, they catch the eye of uh, uh, Ranjan and um, oh god, what is that other guy's name? I know Ron John's the main guy, but like they, Chan. The, what is it? Chan? Chan, because that's the one that she told him had the really sharp suit that was so yes. sharp that it would pierce like the whole of a battleship. <laughs> yes. Oh, she uh, it's yes. <laughs> so they they invite them to uh, to the the party at uh, at Ron John's house. Um, or sorry, his. Uh, I think it's his 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 dad's house uh, probably here, and uh, you know again we get a we get a quick glimpse into how kind of out of touch Azula is with just normal social graces because she shows up at like at like when the party is supposed to start. You said that you would be partying from sundown to sunup, or sun, yeah, from sundown to sunup. We are here because we are the perfect party guests. We are punctual, and it's like no one's there. Oh God, it's so funny. That's what, it's every everything again. It's, it's kind of adorable. Yeah, it, it is. is. <laughs> like as much as Azula can be adorable, that moment is so cute, and you're and you remember that she's a. 14 year old teenager and who didn't have a moment like that as a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that she's punctual. I actually appreciate that. I oh. would have been like, thank you, Zilla. Thanks for coming on time. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there truly is no, like sometimes like I, I have shown up at parties before where I've been like, Oh, I don't know. It might be, might be, might be bad if we show up too late, but then I show up too early and then, like, when you're, like, the first people there, it's always just, like, oh, okay, what do we do? <laughs> it's, so, 
then you get roped into helping set up the rest of the party that they're still setting up basically yeah and and, you know i'm glad that you brought up you know it is this like adorable moment for her and uh when uh daniel left us a note in the outline too just saying how uh, over the course of the party it is kind of it's cutting her as a sympathetic character um because she is trying honestly and sincerely to get into the host's good graces um but the world that she lives in is so entirely different that of anyone else present that she's just incapable of comprehending how they relate to each other and that she kind of feels like this like like an alien almost in this situation and you know it's it's such a fascinating look into someone who is so competent and so uh successful in everything that she does to have this like moment where she is awkward and is not really fitting in and you know and then she lashes out at ty lee when you know she just is like you know they're only you know like flirting with you because you you make it so easy you're just a tease and it, there's this really sweet moment because like Tylee gets really upset and Azula like reaches out to her and says I, I'm sorry I'm sorry and like it actually feels like a very genuine moment in a very like in the way that uh Gray Griffin delivers the line too is like it feels so genuine and it's this feeling like Azula is very isolated at this party and she just kind of made one of the only people that she came here with like upset at her. So it's also kind of like this, oh, please don't be sad because I don't even want to be more alone in this party than I already am. <laughs> yeah, I was like say, it's probably the only sincere apology we ever see in the series because she says sorry plenty of times, but it's always in a sarcastic way like, oh, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) This is a sincere apology from Azula, which kind of outlines how much of an outcast she feels like, which is unusual because even though she established with Zuko that she didn't want to tell people that they were royal, that they wanted to be treated normal, I think she still expected people to recognize that she was extraordinary and unique. I think she had that expectation of, even if she was seen as a regular person, that she would still excel at being regular somehow in a way that would make her special among these people and it it backfired on her like she wanted to do this social experiment and it actually pointed out a flaw in azula and god forbid azula have any flaws she is supposed to be perfect in every way and so being considered weird is not something she's prepared for for all of her adaptability for all of her ability to change her plans and adapt to new enemies and adapt to new challenges she falls short on this and i think that you know we'll talk about it at the end how she reacts to it but you know i think we see this building up throughout the episode of of her not doing so well in uh, the social situation definitely and you know again it, it is that feeling that it is kind of building over the course of the party and then you know, she gets some advice from Tylee and Tylee is uh, there. That's like one of my favorite comedic moments from this, too, is uh, when Tylee is just like, you know, you just need to, you know, just laugh at anything they say, even if it's not funny. That seems awfully shallow. And then she's like, go ahead and give it a try. And then like Azula does this just like ridiculous over the top laugh. And like, I love the way they animated her mouth because it just becomes this like, her mouth is so huge. Like while she's doing this laugh and then it zooms out and everyone's just kind of like, uh, that was kind of weird. (laughs) (laughs) It really was beautifully animated. Like the whole expression. (laughs) But, of course, you know, she is able to use Tylee's advice and have this moment on the balcony with Chan. And, you know, it's this suddenly this sincere moment. And she has this incredibly special moment where, you know, they they have a kiss. And, like, we have to assume that this is Azula's first kiss that she's ever had and it's this moment of intimacy and the rush that comes from that and i you know whereas i think for you know most of us you know when you have that first kiss it's the excitement of just like oh this is so great and like yeah you can get swept up in thoughts of like oh we're gonna get married and like this is gonna be great how azula in her level of intensity just takes it 
like five steps further. And it's like, not only are we going to become married, but we are going to become the most powerful couple in the entire world and take over everything. <laughs> oh, my dear, too far. Just too far. Again, too, too, like, it's like the precision that gets backfires. It's like, she's like, I got this all planned out already. You know, and she's just, but she's like so intense. That's mm. like the scary. I would really, <laughs> I would really love to see The Bachelor. <laughs> with Azula, like just her reaction to every guy <laughs> be the exact same way. <laughs> oh, sorry, that just kind of came to mind. I want to see Azula as the Bachelorette now more than anything. I would watch that show in a heartbeat. <laughs> she burns them all. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, those tiki torches in the background are not good signs. Yeah, right. (laughs) Just every confessional with Azula is just like, well, he just, he wasn't doing it for him, for me. So I had him banished. (laughs) Right. Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think that's the best spinoff idea I've ever heard. (laughs) Hey, Mike and Brian, you heard it from us first. Yeah. If uh, <laughs> you know, petition. we just we all we ask is uh, you know we don't we don't even need to get credit or royalties or anything. Just <laughs> you know, like just just a nod. You know, just... they can do it as one of those little chibi mini minis. Oh Remember God. the chibi minis? Yes. Do that as a Zula Bachelorette, <laughs> just little mini episodes, like four little <laughs> mini episodes of her with different bachelors. As a TV, oh. all I want. Oh my god! Oh wow! Yes. I'm yes. I oh, so good. <laughs> hey guys, thank you so much for listening to part three of our deep dive into Azula. This has been so much fun to get to do this, and it looks like we're going to be finishing up with part four uh, the following week. Um, But we just wanted to also thank all the folks for responding to all of the questions that we had uh, for our Instagram poll. So after our part four episode with Azula, we're going to be doing a fan question and answer uh, mini-sode, uh, where we're going to kind of go in, uh, address some of those questions, and then uh, also get to talk about some of the stuff we have planned uh, for the future. We have some exciting developments to get to share with you guys. Um, but for now, uh, thank you so much again, and find us on social media. Follow us, like us, rev- rate, review us. You know the drill. Thanks, guys. Hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Um, so, uh, uh, of course they get, uh, you know, things escalate at the party and, uh, they get kicked out as, uh, Zuko goes into rage mode and getting all jealous and, uh, everyone gets kicked out. And what happens is the next scene is Zuko at the old beach house that their family used to spend their summers at. And he is looking at this old portrait, the family portrait of the four of them. And of course, all of these emotions kind of running through. And the scene where Azula approaches him and they have this conversation, it is such a rare moment of... Transparency and emotional honesty between the two of them. And what I found so powerful about this is that one line that Azula has is like, let's get out of this place. It's depressing. And it's something that they share. It's this feeling that they know that this past that they had together and kind of realizing together in a way that so much of the way that they grew up and the way that they saw childhood and, you know, especially with this like kind of vacation, it's, it's coming to terms with like, it wasn't everything that we thought it might've been. And so much has changed since then. Um, 
and I don't know, I, I, I want to kind of take this moment to kind of go to you guys about if you've had those moments too, because I know for me, I identified heavily with it in terms of moments where I've been older now and looking back at familiar places like with my sister and realizing and looking back at the past in a different lens now that so much has changed and that we're older. And if either of you kind of had a similar type of experience, whether with a sibling or a friend or a family member. I definitely can relate to that. I, I, and that it's, it's funny. I think that's why the show is so profound too. Because, and even as you, and it resonated with such a wide array of ages, um, because they, I mean, these are teenagers identifying with it and people go through different things with families and friends and different relationships. And then you get older, the more you get older, sometimes that happens even more, you know, the more you grow away from things or grow out of things. And, um, you start to see think the things that might seem to change or actually do change. And then when you actually go back to look at them and it's so completely different and like you said, the lens is different, doesn't quite feel as, uh, safe or, um, secure or comforting and it's you get that sort of feeling like I don't belong here right now I can't stay here anymore and it's like that sort of that's say that transparent moment they have it's like she, she just blatantly says I just let's get out of here this is depressing me just she just kind of even calls it just like right to the point like nah I don't, I don't want to be here <laughs> not even like kind of thinking about it but she's just sort of like you know and I get that. I get that. You know, just cuts to the chase there. It's like, well, it's, it, things are definitely different now. And it's hard to, it makes it more painful to then look back when you had a completely different mindset on something. For sure. But yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Mm. What about you, Kristen? Uh, it, it could not have more literally paralleled with my life at that point. Um, I started watching Avatar in late high school. And when I was 14, before Avatar came on the series, my parents went through a divorce. And, you know, my parents splitting up wasn't necessarily the hardest part. But the 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 way the divorce played out was was really hard. And, you know, when you're a kid, you harbor, harbor a lot of emotions sometimes. And especially when your parents split, you don't always have ways of reaching out. And so as much as I try not to say that I identify her with her because she is a sociopath <laughs> in that moment. I identified with her because, uh, after I turned 21 and, uh, I was, the series was still going and that scene came up. I'd actually turned 21 when that episode had come up and I actually went back to the neighborhood we were living in when my parents divorced and they had actually torn down the neighborhood. Whoa. Yep, so the house that I had lived in when that happened had been torn down and we actually had a bonfire over where the house had been. Like, you know, we oh went out there gosh. with a six pack with with the six pack and we drank and burned a fire and me and some friends of mine talked about because I mean we were all military families and <laughs> let me tell you what, if you if you want to meet somebody who's probably had some kind of traumatic past, you should probably talk to somebody who grew up in the military because yeah. I don't know anybody, with the exception of maybe two people, I don't know anybody I grew up with who has parents that are still together, who didn't have issues like parents with, with, with alcoholism, PTSD, all this stuff. And so we actually had a moment where, all, where we all sat around a bonfire, and we basically just expelled all this trauma with each other. And it part of that spark had happened because I had seen that episode, and I was like, hey, guys, you know what? I'm feeling nostalgic. Let's go, let's go visit the old neighborhood. And I had no idea that, that they had torn it down. So it was, a <laughs> it, was it was a very strong moment for all of us when we went. Wow. Well, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. That, yeah. that, I mean, that, that's crazy. That's, it's so crazy. The, like the, the parallels with that. And it was really weird, <laughs> oh, man. It, it, and, and I know we talked about, uh, when we were doing our discussion at the beach of this feeling of, you know, the power of sitting around a fire with friends and especially reflecting on the past. And in our previous episode, this idea of, you know, the power of going to the beach 
and just revisiting places that have significance to our past, both good and bad, it what it does to bring out uh, certain emotions and things that have you know been either you know bubbling under the surface or have been buried for years and you know that's so much of what we see in this scene the fire is this kind of way of bringing all of this out for all of these characters including azula and of course, we have the scenes where Ty Lee and May and Zuko kind of share their stories. And Azula chimes in and is even kind of saying, like, you know, oh, well, you know, this is all also dramatic, like your sob stories. And, you know, and then in Zuko kind of saying, like, you know, what do you, uh, yeah, what do you have to say? You've always uh, had everything so perfect. And Azula having that moment of vulnerability. Not even my own mother loved me. She thought I was a monster. And how we get this close-up of her. And she's looking into the fire. And she is lost in this thought. Her mind clearly racing to the past and these images And what we talked about in our previous episode was that every flashback that we got of Ursa and Azula in a scene together, Ursa was always reprimanding Azula. And the complex relationship that she had with her. And Azula reliving that in that kind of moment. And opening up in that moment of honesty of saying that, my own mother thought I was a monster, but not sitting too long with that emotion. Because as soon as she says it, well, she was right, of course. <laughs> and just switching on that. And it's kind of this just indicator that, wow, we just got this, this very personal moment, this honest moment from Azula, but she can't stay there in that emotional place because whether it's too painful or she sees it as a weakness of opening up, but the significance of that moment and why this moment is such a huge part whenever anyone analyzes Azula as a character, it is always this moment that people always turn to and analyze the most because We see Azula all the time before this, so composed, striving for perfection, and controlled. And this emotional honesty that she gives us is such a rare glimpse, but it's so fleeting. And I don't know, any final thoughts on kind of this scene with her and the campfire uh, with the beach? I think that it it definitely kind of like shows some of the chinks in her armor, but at the same time, you know, it's it's hard to say too much without speculating about her psychological state, which you know anybody could write a book on. Yeah. Um, whether <laughs> she refuses to acknowledge emotions or whether she's actually incapable of it, the way some people are, um, is is kind of hard to determine. Like she obviously tries to confront these things but her her swings back and forth from being like i mean we see it from the very beginning when 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 we were talking about volleyball how she was a calm collected leader and then at the end she goes into psycho mode and burns the net when she goes to the party and she's trying to be cool with chan and then he kisses her and then again we see fiery azula talking about being a powerful couple we go to the beach you know we get this again, this this calm emotional moment from Azula, and then she just switches again. You know, it's it's so hard to tell, at least in that episode for the moment, what is wrong. It, does she refuse to acknowledge or confront her emotions, or is she actually incapable of it? And it it definitely sheds more light on her character. We definitely got to see her be a teenager, and at the same time, we also 
kind of see the beginning of the end because now that the chinks in her armor have been revealed, we do start to see that in the end being what tears her down is these small flaws that are like sort of played out lightly in this episode ultimately end up being probably the reason why, uh, you know, things ended up the way they did in the final episode. Mm, definitely. Casey. I actually had to actually that that's so perfect. Um, I was thinking about just thinking about that point, um, where in, you know, in, in, especially with somebody like her, I think she's very, uh, aware of where she's vulnerable. I think she is depending on how, you know, now, that being said, even if you're aware of it, you still have to learn how to accept it and work your way through it. She could be setting up a, a defense mechanism, and I think she's somebody who's not used to getting out of her comfort zone. Um, that's being, And she uses her power and her strength and all these abilities she's created as her sort of uh, armor, like, like mentioning the armor sort of metaphor there. And any sort of uh, personal, social, emotional issues she's had, she's... That's why she says when she when she makes a side comment where, you know, my mother thought I was a monster, but she was right, of course, but she's almost making that true because if she, she, that's, I think she almost wears it like armor in that sense. It's, it's that sort of line, that not, don't forget what, who you are, wear it like armor and it can never be used to hurt you, except she's doing it. She's not really doing that. It's like, she's not really coming to terms with it, but she's kind of turned it into this sort of like, well, if that's what she thinks I am, that's what I'll be. And she almost did that anyway. That's that's the kind of like the the weird irony in that where it's just sort of like I wonder, you know, she's set up to be this sort of, you know, uh, prodigy of a child, but she doesn't have the love of her mother um, because of I, I think because of that relationship. And that's something, of course, that we have to dig into deeper. But it's like she's still it's having to not have the love of a parent or a family member uh, to not have their um, confidence or their. Um, just, just support or appreciation or anything like that is is the most devastating thing. I don't care how confident you are in everything else. So she kind of like has something deeply rooted in there that that she's sort of using the rest of her abilities to try to um, like overcome or kind of you know put it at rest. And, it, and as as you were saying, it's it's sort of the beginning of the end for her because now it's been revealed to us what this is and what her weakness is and how, what she's not come to terms with. And uh, that's where she could become unraveled. It's the one part where that can become unraveled. So yeah, very, very, very insightful into that sort of thing. And I, and it's, it's a very real pain. I think it was a, a very interesting thing that they introduced, especially into, again, at this age group that's watching the show and that it's geared towards where you have people that are dealing with, with you may have parents that are going through issues or families that are going through conflict and, that can relate to this where they might feel distance from them and, and to see the way that someone like Asula behaves and just how she deals with it. It just, they needed to humanize her a bit because otherwise she wouldn't be believable at all. Absolutely. And uh, to kind of like finalize on that point too, you know, concurrently with her growing up and not having that love from her mother and all of that, she also has achieved more. We were talking about this before we even started the episode. She has achieved more as a 14-year-old than anyone else in the known history of the Avatar world has achieved at that age. She basically was running Omashu for the time that she was there for that episode and returned to Omashu. She conquered the Earth Kingdom. And then, you know, she she has risen through the ranks and as she has proven herself and she is the one who slayed the Avatar. I mean, so much of that power and success is also fueling so much of that side of her. And you need love to be able to temper kind of that, the corruption that comes from power. And to really kind of bring it home with a Tolkien point there. <laughs> but but for real, though, I mean, if you don't have that, if you don't have that love, then it's just like you are going to be led down the kind of this path of darkness, which, of course, is 
what we start to see as we're going to be getting into this second half of book three. But to round out this uh, this part of our episode, I want to just talk a little bit about the final stage before it sets that stage for Azula's eventual downfall. And that's the Day of Black Sun. And we see the results of Azula's preparation, installing the gang and her ability to completely subvert what seemed to be a great plan for the gang and completely turn it against them. Of course, we knew that when she found out from the Earth King that there was this planned invasion on the day of Black Sun, when she was disguised as a Kyoshi warrior, we as the audience knew that. However, Aang and the gang did not. They always assumed that that information was what they alone discovered and that they were going to have the upper hand and the advantage to make this happen. But of course, Azula made the preparations by delivering the news to Ozai, working with him and stalling them while this invasion happened and how I want to read uh, one of Daniel's points here because he really kind of hit the nail on the head. He talks a little bit about the, you know, her ability to bypass Toph's lie detecting <laughs> with that amazing line. And he says, and again, with her fighting, almost the entire fight is comprised of her dodging and keeping away from Aang and Toph mostly. She even uses Toph's own attack to move herself to a more advantageous position. And the fact that she's able to dodge and avoid Aang's attacks so completely is even more astounding when you look at the actual martial arts behind the bending, as airbending is based off of Bagua, which is focused on finding and inhabiting your opponent's openings and avoiding head-on confrontation. We saw this in the first kind of major scene between Zuko and Azula when we first started this discussion, when Zuko and Azula had that confrontation on the Fire Nation ship, she is bobbing and weaving and avoiding him in moves that were frankly more like airbending. And she is using that to like the highest degree in this fight when Aang and Toph and Sokka are trying to find Ozai and take her down. And she is just doing her part in this grand scheme. And that is to just stall. And it really is, again, this moment of she is five steps ahead of everyone else. I do have to give her props for, like like it was mentioned, the her ability to dodge. Because it almost makes you wonder. I mean, she's a firebending prodigy. And firebending has i mean you can kind of see it in this you know with the exception of earth bending we see a lot of flow in air bending fire bending and water bending fire bending does tend to be a little bit more harsh but for the most part azula's proven that she's a very agile person so i don't feel like it would be too much of a stretch i mean she obviously couldn't learn air bending since ang is the only airbender we know of in this timeline but i don't feel like it would be a stretch for azula to have been one of those people who like Iroh, um, you know, kind of looked at other forms of martial arts or defense and fighting and kind of brought that into her repertoire. I mean, if she's a prodigy at firebending, who's to say she wouldn't be a prodigy at like the styles of waterbending, even if she can't bend water, she can still use it to her advantage. So, you know, it really does make you wonder how much she's done. I mean, it's really impressive what she shows us she's capable of at every turn because we've seen her fight, but we've never seen her essentially run before and dodge um, with the one exception of her escape from the gang and Uncle Iroh, um, you know, back in season two. So it's, uh, it, it just feels like there is no stopping her. She, <laughs> she really feels like an impossible, you know, obstacle to overcome in the series because it feels like she really does play it you know for the long game and she's very patient it's hard for them to break her to goad her into fighting you know it it 
she she knows what she's doing. She's very focused, and there is no stopping Azula when she decides what she needs to do and what she wants to do. And in that moment, she just needs them to not succeed. She doesn't have to defeat them. She doesn't have to do anything. All she has to do is have them fail, and she does it beautifully. Definitely, Casey. Any thoughts? I I don't have I don't have much more to add to that aside from just because she's it, it's that it's her being so calculated it's like she sees everything it's a chess game she always and she's always like and always like several steps ahead and it's like how do you beat somebody like that it's like if, if you think you can one-up her on anything she'll be like again like several steps beyond what you've already thought of if you've thought of it she's already thought of it already yeah. so it's like how do you outdo anything even even when you're trying to like take away their most important power because that was the whole thing that was the whole point of behind that plot and to get you know so they wouldn't be they would be you know completely out of their firepower for, for a certain amount of time. Um, it shows that, oh, that she doesn't rely on that. That was a good, that was a showing of how she, it's not all about firebending for her. It's about her brain and how she strategically just figures how to, to still make, make things work for her. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's, there's nothing scarier than, there's nothing more frightening than that. Because again, it's just like what you were saying. It's like, it, she's still, is able to to get the better of everybody else, even when they take away what's considered her main power and her most, I guess, powerful power, which would be her fire, her fireman. But yeah, what it makes you question that is that really her most powerful power? I mean, her it's her her manipulative mind that's just like like is, is again might be mightier in that sense. It's, it's really scary. Yeah, and you know, in echoing one of the the things that we talked about in our first. Uh, part of this series uh was that azula surrounding herself with uh friends that have these abilities uh like tylee and may and you know so much of what she is doing is very reminiscent of what may and tylee excel at because they don't have bending but they are so good at maneuvering on a battlefield and that is exactly what she does and the final point i want to bring up with this too is that so much of that time when we were waiting between book two and book three, there was always the thought of what if Toph was there at Crossroads of Destiny? How different would that fight have been if they would have had Toph there to even the scales and fight against Azula? You know, it was always this feeling like, oh, if only Toph was there, then they would have been able to take her down. And suddenly we get this matchup and we're like, all right, we've got Toph now. Aang is even stronger because he's improved on his training. And they still can't take her down. And she doesn't even have her fire bending. And it really showed like she is the one of the most skilled and competent fighters that this show has. And you can make the argument from what we see with Ozai, we only really get to see his fight with Aang at the very end. So we don't really get to see him like non-juiced up on Sozin's comment power. But I mean, Azula clearly is, as we've said before, a prodigy. And this just proves it even more so when she is able to manipul- outmaneuver and manipulate Toph, Aang, and Sokka in this in this fight. So that is going to conclude uh, this part uh, of our discussion on Azula. Um, so we will be back for the second half of uh, book three, discussing the Boiling Rock, um, the betrayal there, and then, of course, Azula's breakdown in the finale. Uh, but again, thank you so much uh, again for listening, and uh, thank you to Kristen and Casey for uh, joining me for this discussion tonight. Uh, this has been incredible. Again, we all love Azula so much. So this is just like uh, it's such a good, <laughs> such a good character. I just want to say I really love the line where she says, "Oh, they turn." I guess the firebending's back on. <laughs> yeah. It passes, and she's still she's still as calm as ever. She's like, "Oh, the firebending's back on," and then like, <laughs> it didn't somebody reset the circuit breaker. Yes. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, So be sure to uh, stay tuned for uh, the uh, next part and the final part of our uh, discussion on Azula. Um, But thank you all again so much for listening and your continued support. Uh, Remember, you can find us on social media uh, on 
Facebook and Instagram at Legend of Portalcast and on Twitter at Portalcast Pod and on our website at legendofportalcast.com where you can subscribe. Uh, there's some nice buttons there so you can go directly to iTunes or Spotify to be able to subscribe. And if you're there, uh, feel free to leave us a review uh, and a rating, whatever you feel is most appropriate. And for the folks who have left us reviews and ratings, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. That is helping uh, us in terms of our visibility. And uh, just uh, the feedback is always just really, really incredible. Um, and I, I also want to take uh, just this moment too to do a special shout out um, to uh, two of uh, our followers on Instagram. They left us just some amazing comments. Um, and I just wanted to give them a special shout out too, because it was just so heartwarming uh, to to hear this. Um, the first one is uh, Mickey Shashin Nine on Instagram, and uh, the second one was uh, Ryan DS. Uh, thank you both so much for your incredible, uh, thoughtful comments and uh, support of the show. Um, and uh, until next time, and when we dive even deeper into Azula and her fall, let us leave. <laughs>